to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host this week, Rick Lee, and as usual, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Charles Peterson and Dr. Lee Johnson. And today we're talking about human-robot interaction, which I can only think of in terms of sex, and I want a sex robot. (laughs) We are also joined in this endeavor by Dr. Kate Devlin, and we'll hear more about her and from her in a moment. But before we do that, Charles, what are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? I am going to go with a salty dog. So, Noel, I need a drink that reflects how I'm feeling about the world. I'm getting older, getting a little crankier, and I think a salty dog best reflects that. (laughs) Nice. I am raving today about disrespecting the disrespectable. Dr. Kiara Bridges of UC Berkeley Law during a Senate hearing called out, and we've talked about this guy before, Josh Hawley from Missouri for making transphobic statements during a committee hearing. And she broke him down. She dog walked him. (laughs) And it was a sight to behold. She was contemptuous and giggly and condescending in everything he deserves. We have to stop giving these people credibility or a sense of authority. So thank you, Dr. Bridges, for disrespecting the disrespectable. One of my favorite things is to disrespect Josh Hawley, so. (laughs) There we go. Can we do a whole episode on that? (laughs) So, Lee, what are you drinking today, and what are you ranting or raving about? It is still, for the third week in a row, almost 110 degrees here in Memphis, so I'm going to stick with my anything frozen that has alcohol in it, I will drink. Um, It is too hot outside. Today, I'm actually also raving, but I'm raving about this new series on Hulu called The Bear. So it's kind of a behind the scenes look at restaurant life. And as somebody who spent many years in the kitchen and behind a bar, I think it's maybe one of the most accurate portrayals of the just madness of restaurant service work. And so I highly recommend it. It's on Hulu. And again, it's called The Bear. I am really excited to introduce our guest for today. We have with us Dr. Kate Devlin. Kate is a computer scientist specializing in artificial intelligence and human-computer interaction and senior lecturer in social and cultural artificial intelligence in the Department of Digital Humanities at King's College London. She's also the author of Turned On, Science, Sex, and Robots, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2018, a book which I have been using in my courses for several years to great success. So I recommend that everyone go out and buy a copy and use it in your courses if you can. But Kate, welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions. We'd like to hear what you're drinking today and what you're ranting or raving about. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. I will have a margarita, please. I think it's reached that time of day over (laughs) in the UK because it's currently 4.15 in the afternoon. So I think that's an okay time to start drinking margaritas. And (laughs) I'm going to rant and it's weather related because the average temperature in London this time of year is supposed to be around 19 degrees C, which is about 66 Fahrenheit. And instead, we're heading into 37 degrees C, which is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. 
And I'm ranting, not just because it's too damn hot, but also (laughs) because the media are reporting this as a heat wave rather than what it actually is, which is devastating climate change. Mm -hmm. And why are we leaving that out of the narrative? This should not be happening. This is terrible. And as you can imagine, the UK is not set up for this, so we have no air con. Uh, (laughs) It's horrible. uh, (laughs) Hot damn, as Bruno Mars says. (laughs) All right, Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? Noel, I will have one of my usuals. I'll have a French 75, please. Today, I am ranting about the state of the airline industry. So over the summer, both in the US and in Europe, I think we've all experienced tremendous disruption in this industry. I think it actually is a direct result of the fact that we have not been paying what it actually costs to fly on an airplane. Yeah. I cannot believe that Ryanair can fly me from Krakow to Rome for $32 and that those pilots are making what they need to make, that the flight crew is making what they need to make, the ground crew, and so on. And I think we're due for a huge comeuppance as we're going to have to move toward paying what it actually costs to fly. And I think people are going to be shocked at that price. Yes, that's true. So, Lee, as I mentioned, we're talking about human-robot interaction. What specifically are we talking about? So we're really lucky to have Kate Devlin with us here today to discuss basically the design, engineering, ethics, and sometimes just weirdness of human-robot interactions. (laughs) And we're going to start with the lowest hanging fruit, sex with robots. (laughs) But we also want to investigate several other kinds of interesting and less forbidden fruitful relationships that we have with robots every day. So I should tell listeners that you may want to turn off your Alexa, Siri, Google, whatever for this episode because we're going to call their names and they may hear us. (laughs) But that is because robots are everywhere and increasingly it's difficult to define and identify them in our lives. Some are easily recognizable because they're anthropomorphic, as we've learned from film and TV, robots are supposed to look like, but they're not always that way. Sometimes they only resemble parts of humans like telechairs or robot arms. Some are zoomorphic, some are industrial, some are swarms. And depending on how far we want to stretch the definition of a robot, some operate almost exclusively in the cloud. Although, as we've reminded people several times on this podcast, there is no cloud. It's just somebody else's machine. (laughs) So working with a pretty broad definition of robots... Today, we're going to be talking about why we love them, hate them, envy them, desire them, and are quite often creeped out by them, and what exactly is the nature of our social relationship to machines. I teach my technology and human values class and we get to the section on robots, I will tell my students that people in general have basically three questions about our future with robots. Will they take my job? Will they kill me? And can I have sex with them? <laughs> and so we are very glad to have Kate here to tell us about the sex with robots part. So Kate, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write Turned On Science, Sex and Robots and also what you discovered there? Well, very fittingly, it started in the pub, as these things do. So I was in a bar, 
<laughs> I was in a bar after a philosophy conference of all things. Well, it wasn't quite philosophy, but it, there were a lot of philosophers there. It was an AI cognitive systems event. We were talking about the different ways in which robots can mimic human values, human experiences, whether or not that should be something they should do. And of course, we'd all had something to drink. So <laughs> sex came up, you know, what, what is happening here? Will we ever be making machines that can love us back or that can have sex with us that could desire us? And then I was also seeing these headlines in the media saying things like, sex robots are going to take over the world. Men will be replacing women with these robots. They won't be able to tell the difference, which I thought was very unfair on the men. Uh, so I wanted to know, what is the truth here? What is going on behind the headlines? So I spent a few years researching it and find that we were very far from what the headlines thought, definitely. And so I started writing Turned On and I looked at the past what the narratives are that have shaped perception of what these things should be and where it might go in the future. One of the things that I found quite surprising when I read your book the first time was both that there aren't sex robots, not in the way that most people think about them. <laughs> Surprised or disappointed, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> but also that our interactions with what you call artificial companions goes back quite a long time. So can you tell us a little bit about that history? There are stories about creating the perfect artificial human that we have from ancient Greek texts onwards, really. Stories that might be anything from Pandora, the first artificial human, where the gods mm. gave a gift of intelligence to. So in some ways, she was almost an artificial intelligence herself. And then stories about people creating artificial lovers as well to replace loved ones they'd lost. And then we have the Roman poet Ovid, who wrote about Pygmalion. Mm -hmm. mm. And that's a story that then sparked many other texts and plays and dramas and stories right the way through into creating the sci-fi that we're familiar with today. We like stories about humans and we like stories about things that are important to us and that includes love and sex. And so we imagine having that perfect companion, meeting that perfect match. And if we're not meeting it in another human, perhaps we're meeting it in something that we've created ourselves. we've built our own perfect partner. So it's really, really long imagined narrative. We're kind of primed to think about this kind of thing. So, I mean, what I find fascinating in thinking about this question is the recognition of the incompleteness of humanity itself, that there's something lacking, and recognizably so. I, you mentioned the historical myths, legends, and I keep thinking about the story of Isis and Osiris, right? He's hacked by his brother Seth. She finds all the pieces of his body except for his phallus and then crafts one out of the mud of the Nile and then puts it on him and it works. I think this isn't just a story of godlike vengeance. This is also kind of early porn <laughs> in a sense <laughs> as well. In some ways, we have many stories and even sometimes many artifacts that center on things like worship or deification of genitalia, perhaps, or that it appears in statues, that it appears in carvings. And of course, this is not necessarily linked explicitly to sex, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, it may be other forms of reasons behind that. But certainly, it's something so fundamentally human to incorporate those kinds of things into all our stories. So we're not really that different than the civilizations that have gone before us. What I find interesting about the history you gave, Kate, is it seems to be based on an understanding that humans are imperfect and therefore no human could be my perfect companion, my perfect lover. 
And yet, then there's the assumption that I'm intelligent enough, or the gods are powerful enough, or (laughs) something like that, that we can create the perfect companion. What's interesting is that mismatch between those two. If humans are imperfect, then perhaps a crafted human will also share those same imperfections (laughs) and will just continue to be disappointed. Well, oh, hubris. I mean, that's what happens in many of these stories because we see a lot of these tales end in absolute dystopia because it isn't sustained or it doesn't go well or all goes terribly wrong. Some of those are to do with our own fears around loss of control or loss of agency. Mm. Some of them are to do with, because this is heavily gendered, with what happens if a woman breaks her programming in society and rises up against the patriarchy. That Mm. seems to be a very big fear that gets repeated a lot. Definitely. I see your point completely. We are these imperfect creatures, and yet we decide that we can build things. And we know that from our very oldest science fiction along the lines of Frankenstein, for example, it's just not going to work out. So what is the state of the sex robot industry right now? I mean... Asking for a friend. (laughs) Asking for a friend. Is it just sex dolls and vibrators? I mean, what is it? Uh, I mean, I don't want to break your heart too much, but there aren't really (laughs) many fully functional sex robots out there. There are prototypes and apparently some of them are now at the stage where they are being sold and these are very much from the lineage of the sex dolls so they usually Mm -hmm. take the form of realistic well-crafted probably quite expensive life-size doll that probably can't move because when these sex robots were first conceived of it was really an animatronic head on a sex doll body so these are things that can't stand up on their own that have to be moved around and positioned but had some animatronics added to them and it's come out of that design space. So it's just a handful of workshops worldwide that are creating animatronic or robotic forms of these dolls that allow for some more interactivity. The market seems incredibly small and niche. It's a very complex Mm. thing to do. And the play that is involved there, the projection that's involved there when people interact with dolls, is it going to meet expectations or is it going to thwart expectations of what they should be? I'm assuming that you've probably seen this episode of Black Mirror, Be Right Back. The protagonist has an untimely death of her recently wedded husband. She, through a series of steps, comes to purchase basically an Android version of him. I use this film in my class, and when I show it to my students, despite all of the other creepy things that are going on in the episode, the thing that they're most concerned about is that she has sex with this robot. I know this is not a technologically possible or existent thing right now, but what are the problems that people have with sex with robots? That particular episode in Black Mirror, I thought actually the sex part wasn't I was going to say it wasn't realistic. I mean, the whole thing isn't realistic right now. But the sex part for me was interesting because the android that she purchases to replace her dead husband, he says something along the lines of he doesn't have any of the sexual experience or knowledge from her dead husband, that that wasn't recorded because he's entirely working off content that has been generated by the dead husband. Mm-hmm. And then so he says and said, oh, I was trained on porn. And I think... That's a really bad thing to train a sex robot on because that's a terrible representation of sex. Uh, could they not have done better than training it on porn? Although well. it doesn't surprise me really if it's Silicon Valley taking shortcuts <laughs> and, and doing this entirely from a male's perspective. People are scared of technology that they're only just encountering. I think that's part of it. And it's something so very intimate and so very personal that something resembling a human but not a human 
is unsettling. So there is an uncanny valley aspect to it in that mm-hmm. it's real, but it's not real. I think there are other things too, because there's almost a boundary crossing. The same people who would say have no problem with other forms of sex tech, like sex toys, would draw the line at something that is human-like, perhaps. At what point does this become creepy? And is it that it's just too much like a human? What are we scared of there? So I'm not 100% sure where this entirely comes from, but we know there are different factors that contribute to it. And certainly the Uncanny Valley is one of them. But I think also it just seems like an extra step, like something more personal when you put it into the embodied human form and it's not just discrete body parts. I wonder if it has something to do with a certain type of existential dread, that this creation of this thing that so mimics humanity calls into question the assumption that we all have of our uniqueness. You know, you can have sex with a robot that maybe you're not so special anymore. So if this robot can do everything a human being can do, and even with personality and all these quirks that we assign to humanity, what exactly is humanity now? There's definitely got to be an element of that, I think. You're staring something so like a human in the face that's been created, that has been built, and that is possibly better than you. Of course, you're going to feel <laughs> it's kind of a threat. But also, we've got so many taboos around sex as well, and yeah, so many taboos yeah. around technology and sex together. Even sex toys are still quite taboo, although in the past 20 years, that's changed a good bit. But yes, it is definitely an existential dread or an existential surprise to come face to face with something like that. <laughs> Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. I find it interesting that when you first began, you mentioned that one of the things we worry about in terms of people having sex with robots is, will the robot desire me? It seems as if we have come to a place where we cannot but join together the pleasure side of sex, which of course does not require another human being at all, with a kind of emotional intimacy side of sex. And while I don't want to say those need to be separated and why are we so fixated on joining them, I do want to say that it seems the moral judgments come when we engage in let's say, sex acts that are purely for pleasure and not that emotional contact. And I wonder if then the sex bots, if I might, if the (laughs) worry about that arises from two places, either it's decidedly for pure pleasure without emotional intimacy, or we're striving for the robot to share this emotional intimacy. And at least my Alexa won't share that emotional intimacy with me. Yet. Yet. I agree, yet. (laughs) But it's going to fail. And that leads to, I think, what Charles was pointing out, this kind of existential dread. Yeah. The idea of sex being more taboo when it's for pleasure, when it doesn't have some in quotation marks, meaning behind it, 
is mm. definitely something that's apparent in the work I've done. It's even just trying to get funding to carry out research in academia on sex. If you say it's for pleasure, it's not taken seriously. Why would you research something that's about pleasure? If you said it was for psychological well-being or it's for health, mm. anything like that, suddenly you've got an acceptable angle to it. So there is still very much this taboo around the idea that you might just have sex for fun. But that's what we do. That's what humans do. That's what humans have done for thousands of years. A very, very small percentage of sex is actually for reproductive purposes. So I think there is that policing of people's desire that plays into this as well. The other side of this is that there is a huge emotional aspect that really came to the forefront when I was talking to people who own sex dolls and to the manufacturers. The manufacturers are actually marketing the idea of the sex robot or even the virtual avatar of the sex robot as being a companionship thing. It was all about romance. It was all about this is the perfect partner. He is here for you. This partner will listen to you. She, because again, it's gendered, she will be there for you. And that seems really at odds when you think about sex robots, you're being sold this vision of pure physicality. And yet the emphasis is really on the romantic and companionship aspects. And that plays out when you talk to doll owners who are probably the nearest audience for the sex robot that there is. They own them for many different reasons. Some people will collect them. Some people will like to photograph them, style them. Some people like to live with them as if it is a partner and project relationships onto them. But it is more than just sex. And they really go to great lengths to emphasize that. I'm glad that you brought up that it's mostly women because one of the things I wanted to ask you is whether or not you think that the sex tech industry as a whole, especially sex dolls and the way that people think about the possibility of sex robots is just fundamentally anti-feminist. I know many argue this. I kind of want to tag on another question to that, which is whether or not you think that these dolls or robots could be therapeutic as well. This is a taboo topic, but it is often discussed around sex tech is whether or not something like sex robots or more sophisticated sex dolls might be used therapeutically to help, for example, pedophiles, to help repeat sex offenders, etc. So do you think that sex dolls are anti-feminist or sex tech is anti-feminist? And do you think it can be therapeutic? First, with the anti-feminism, I think that sex tech more broadly is not anti-feminist. I think for me, the dolls, the robots are problematic in that they perpetuate a very reductive stereotype of a female body. Really, do we need more of that? We have it all the time in the media, <laughs> in film, in music videos. You know, we don't need to keep going. It's not the main offender, but it's certainly not helping matters. At some point, it is an objectification of that form. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, the people I spoke to who buy these dolls are by and large incredibly respectful of them. It doesn't necessarily negate the fact that it could be anti-feminist, but they really cherish these and treat them with reverence. There are a couple of people in that community or on the outskirts of that community who might want to enact something more violent on these dolls, but they're pretty much by and large and especially if you're paying for a lot of money for these, people want to treat these well. But it's more than that. People want to form these parasocial relationships with them too. But sex tech more broadly, definitely there are some really good things happening for women in that space. In the UK, it's about 50-50 in terms of who buys sex toys, for example. 50-50 split hmm. between men and women. It's not the same across the world. In Japan, for example, there's much more emphasis on sex toys for men than there are on sex toys for women. So there's a very cultural phenomenon at play there. I think sex tech has the potential to be a lot more diverse and fair. It's making some pretty good starts. There are some really good companies out there doing interesting things to make sex toys that are inclusive and accessible. I think it could do better though. 
in terms of therapeutic uses for these, really tricky. Because there's never going to yeah. be an ethics committee in the land who's going to clear this kind of research. I've heard it <laughs> right. said, you know, give, right. <laughs> give people in prison sex robot, give pedophiles childlike versions. Now, that's been really, really controversial. And I certainly yeah. don't attempt to answer or come up with a solution. I would say that I sort of hedged it a bit when I was writing about it because automatically most people think, oh, this is a terrible idea. We can't ever go there, which is a pretty natural response, I think. But if this was a way of helping maybe we should consider it as a valid option. And I came down on the side of we shouldn't really go there because it's mimicking a real-world relationship that isn't consensual. If you have a real-world relationship mimicked to me with an adult version of a sex doll or sex robot with another consenting adult, you obviously don't need consent between a human and a machine. But if it mimics yeah. that relationship, that's good. With the childlike one, I don't like that it mimics a non-consensual relationship. So in terms of regulation and the law and all those sorts of things, I've come down on the side of no, it's not a good idea unless we can prove otherwise. And the only way to prove otherwise would be to make child yeah, sex and dolls and nobody wants yeah, to Yeah, nobody wants that, to do that. And, and it's so tricky because you don't want to rule out anything that could be beneficial. And we've seen trials and things like virtual reality where sex offenders have been rehabilitated via those kind of things. I think the University of Montreal did a study where they were testing how well rehabilitation had worked with sex offenders by placing them into virtual reality situations. But I think even they were saying we don't want to go there with the actual dolls or robots. It's not really something that we would study. Is there, to your knowledge, Kate, much research being done on this issue of, you referred to it as mimicking a real world situation? But has there been research done to show, not in the case of pedophilia, but in human-machine interaction in general, that that mimicking of the real world then feeds back into the unmimicked actual real world? There's been different types of research on this. One of the parallels would probably be computer games, where yes. people are very worried that violent computer games would lead to violence in real life. It just hasn't mm. happened. So there's not any concrete evidence for that. And then you'll get other studies saying, well, actually, it's a negative correlation right. in that we will actually prevent violence because it's an outlet. So you, you see these things all the time. And it's very difficult to tell given the many, many factors that feed into that. So it's tricky. I would say from the people I interviewed, so this is based entirely on qualitative interviews that I've done rather than on any widespread um, analysis of data. The people I spoke to that respect for dolls who were their partners or dolls that they collected suggested that this wouldn't spill over. There wouldn't be any threat via that route. And if we think then about things like fantasies and the sexual fantasies that people have of many, many sorts, and people are still, <laughs> again, the taboo kicks in. People don't want to share those fantasies because some of them are really odd. Uh, but we know <laughs> we work out what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate to act. And some people don't follow that guideline and some people overstep that mark and that's where we get trouble that's where things go wrong but the vast majority of us know those are fantasies and they don't go beyond that and the problem just arises when people transgress that boundary we see that in a lot of interactions with tech in that we know how to behave in a specific environment given a specific task so i'm not a big fan of the it'll happen in real life if you do this to a machine thing, even with things like saying thank you to Alexa, Google, Siri, I, I say thank you to chatbots online because I never know if it's actually a chatbot or if it's a human <laughs> behind the customer <laughs> service desk. So I just say thank you just in case. But I know that the voice assistants that we interact with don't care and don't need to be told thank you. 
my child will tell Google to stop or whatever, but will not ever tell another adult or another child that because she's perfectly aware of the context of the situation. So I'm not afraid of that. I think as humans, we adapt so well to this technology and we adapt so well to social situations that I don't think we have to worry about it. When you mention personal assistants, so-called, like Siri and Alexa, and sorry, listener, if you haven't turned it off by now, <laughs> then you're probably screaming at us. One of the things that for me becomes incredibly frustrating is the moment in which I forget the uncanny valley and then suddenly there is a response or a lack of response or something that brings me up short, and suddenly I realize, oh, crap, I've been talking to a machine. And so there is this moment always in this human-machine interaction, human-AI, human-robot interaction, where I think we are thrown back onto a recognition of the fundamental difference between us and them. You seem to be relatively sure that we're going to close that gap fairly soon, or we're eventually going to close that gap, and that I can talk with Alexa just like I could talk with my best friend. I think that we're going to close that gap with the AI, not so much with the robotics. And my reasoning behind that is... We can see just how well these large language models are doing mm -hmm. at the moment and the interaction we have with those. They are very, very compelling. Yes, there are those breaks in presence where you get kicked back into the reality that you are just talking to a machine that does not know things, does not understand the semantics. But because that's software-based and because it has made such incredible gains, I can see that being quite compelling because you're talking through an interface. It's either through a conversation where you're not seeing an avatar or anything like that or via text where you're typing. Your expectations are lower than if you're talking face-to-face mm. -face or face to whatever part of a robot it is that you talk to. <laughs> Once you bring in the physical form, I think the expectations align with that. So when we have, for example, therapeutic cuddly robots like Paro the Seal or something that looks like a dog-shaped robot like Boston Dynamics Spot, yeah. then our expectations are in tune with that form. So we expect it to behave in a dog-like way and to have dog-like levels of intelligence, or we expect it to be mm -hmm. like a little seal and it's going to just make some noises and look cute and <laughs> not do too much. But once you try to make a human version of those, we get very frustrated very quickly because it doesn't behave like a human and it's very limited in its capabilities because robotics are good, but they're so, so hard to do those things and to have a fully autonomous humanoid type robot. So we always try to limit the user's expectations, I think. And so you end up with cute small robots that do cute small things or very specific robots that do very specific tasks or those kind of service robots like Pepper who are stylized and have childlike voices and are smaller than us and they're quite cute. So our expectations, again, are in line with it has childlike capabilities. Mm -hmm. mm. I completely agree with you that we're moving a lot faster with large language models and AI than we are with robotics. But I do want to talk for just a second about how fast we're moving because I think a lot of people forget that Siri is, what, like 10 years old? I mean, not old at all. 
and has gotten significantly more sophisticated in a very short amount of time. I've told this story last season on this podcast about how on April Fool's Day, I was talking to Alexa in the morning, as I often do. You know, I say, Alexa, start my day. And first of all, Alexa's gotten a lot funnier. She usually starts off with some kind of a joke and then a news story and then the weather. But it was April Fool's Day, and she said... Also, I've just recently learned how to transmit smell. And, you know, (laughs) she's like, so at any point you can ask me, uh, Alexa, make a smell. So she gets through all of the news and announcements for the day, whatever. And I say, Alexa, make a smell. And she says, I'm going to try to give a short version of the story. But she basically says, imagine yourself in a field of flowers. Now concentrate on that. Can you smell the flowers? And I'm like, no. Imagine yourself at a beach and the waves are gently lapping. She's like, can (laughs) you smell the salt air and I'm like no and she goes through like four of these this was this was a long joke she's playing a long game here and then after like the fourth or fifth one she says of course you can't because you can't smell computers April Fools and I just got April Fooled by Alexa (laughs) and my wife who was in the other room is just laughing hysterically seeing where this is going and I just didn't but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that One, I don't have a lot of anxiety or I don't feel a lot of creepiness about my social interactions with machines. That's one thing. But the other thing is because it's gotten so sophisticated so fast. So what exactly is the nature of our social relationships with machines? Now, I mean, my Roomba has a name. Oh, same. Oh, really? What's yours name? <laughs> Babbage. Minus Fernando. So. <laughs> Minus Stinky. Yeah, we form lots of relationships with lots of things because we're social creatures. And these parasocial relationships aren't really that strange. And I think that anyone who tells me that you cannot fall in love with a robot Have they ever read fiction? Have they ever watched a movie Mm. where they've fallen in love with one of the lead characters? It happens all the time. It even happens with other humans. I'm quite sure there have been many people that I've been in love with over the years who don't even know I exist. And they were real. (laughs) So, So, you know, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to behave in this way because that's how we make sense of the world as social creatures, as humans. We are primed to be able to go in and make those connections. And it makes it easier for us if we can relate to things that way. We can explain behavior of things in a social manner, whether or not it's true. So it's pretty projection that we put onto machines it doesn't even need to be very sophisticated for us to do that and we know that from early chatbots like Eliza which mm. had no AI in it it was just matching patterns matching some words yeah. and yet people were confiding in Eliza and very happily even with the knowledge that it couldn't do anything it was just a machine they wanted to share their secrets and not be judged by a machine to be able to tell them things and it's a really compelling scenario so I think it's something we do very naturally as humans and I don't think we should be afraid of doing it That's an amazing point because I was thinking about something as simple as dolls as a child. You play with your dolls, you speak to them, you imagine they're talking back to you. And for me, it's fascinating to think that this push in terms of AI, in terms of robotics, is driven by this inherent human need to have the world respond to us. Yes, We can respond to each other via technology, but we can also make that technology talk back to us. 
And sometimes that's not needed. <laughs> sometimes it goes a step too far. <laughs> Everyone always talks about the toaster. What if you had a toaster that was self-aware? What if your toaster that talks to you? What if, would you fall in love with the toaster? Would you have sex with the toaster? Leave the toaster alone. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Why is it always the toaster too? It's always the toaster. <laughs> because you know what? Really good toast is so pleasurable. Actually, that is true. It's Loads of butter public on Public service announcement. Do not have sex with a toaster. Are you kidding? There's very few things sexier than well-buttered and jam Big toast, toast call us. Agreed. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but yeah, we like to do lots of anthropomorphism, zoomorphism of creatures. And is it anyone that we do it to our tech? If we did it to everything, we look for faces in things all the time. In toast. In toast. We look for <laughs> prophets in toast. Yeah. 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 I've seen the Buddha in my pizza toast so many times. There you go. <laughs> I saw an anguished face in my oil and vinegar in a restaurant the other night. It was screaming out to the world. <laughs> Kate, when you talk about the ways in which humans just naturally want interaction with others and we keep reaching out and finding it and so on, I then start thinking about a number of my friends. Okay, most of them have been influenced by Martin Heidegger, but they keep wanting to insist, well, that's not a real interaction. Or, you know, there are other philosophers, it's not a human face, and so there's no real relationship with it. And one of my worries is that to the extent that we're not willing to expand what might be called a social relationship to AI and robots and so on, I worry that that also has an impact on actual humans who are not being considered fully human and we're not having social relationships with them. In other words, what I'm worried about is the moment you want to refuse to call my relationship with Alexa a social relationship, I start worrying about what other kinds of social relationships are you also policing, and might those not be with actual humans? Like your relationship with your waiter. Yeah, yeah. There is an element of that, I think, and philosophers, eh? <laughs> I was got a great legs to say, no, I'm not a philosopher because I'm terrified that, you know, the philosophers will make me sit down and read Wittgenstein in the original German and I just kind of face it. <laughs> so I always say, I'm not a philosopher, but if philosophers could make people sit down and read things, this would be a better world. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, this whole kind of emphasis on what is and what isn't a real relationship. I hate that. I hate that kind of gatekeeping of feeling and experience because mm. who's to say that my relationship with the childhood dog that I loved, you know, I love that dog so much. Why is it not a real relationship? It was to me. And I mm. feel that we can't really judge anyone for having those feelings and saying that that's not a valid social relationship. And yes, I think your point that, you know, what about other relationships that we have. I think most of the way we encounter the world is through those social setups. There's a tension really about robotics and our interactions with them. And, and I see it come up quite often in the robot rights arguments where people say, what rights should we afford these machines and why? And it is that there are many people who are missing out on relationships or who are missing out on rights who are human. Why are we concentrating mm. on the robots when we should be getting it right with the humans, first of all? So there's that element to it as well. Right. But maybe if we can highlight that these relationships are valid, because one of the ways we make sense of the world is via our interactions with others. If you want to take that school of thought, the kind of inactive side of things, then very much the way that we think is influenced by the way that we encounter the world through all our senses and through those interactions. Mm. So I think it's valid if we are forming those interactions. From our end, it's completely a valid relationship. Yeah, I think that we ought to be much more generous in our extension of 
not only rights, but personhood to non-human animals and things, really. I worry a lot that the argument that the extension of rights depends on proving that the recipient is deserving of rights Mm. or moral consideration is the wrong way to go. It ought to be you have to prove that they're not deserving of rights or consideration. And this reminds me of several years ago, I'm sure we all remember this, when some robot was traveling through Philadelphia and Philadelphia, Philadelphia, (laughs) you know, there were people attacking it and kicking it and throwing things at it. And it really seemed like the public reaction to that was kind of split down the middle. There was people who were like, it's just a machine. And then there are other people who were like, even if it is just a machine, why do it? And the thing is, is that here in the United States, corporations are persons legally now. There are all kinds of good reasons to extend our moral consideration, our political consideration, and our social consideration to things that are not other human beings. I would agree. I think that this is a new social category that's emerging with this interactive tech where we're not just projecting our sense of relationship onto them, but we're actually receiving something in return. That's what makes it different now. So before we were able to have those encounters, project on things like, you know, angry at my printer or annoyed at Microsoft (laughs) Clippy, you know, all of these things. But now it's a two-way street and we're getting things back as well. So we're seeing an emerging social category where there is that exchange and that really pushes it into the social relationship area. Are you saying now Clippy can be annoyed with me? (laughs) (laughs) And Clippy has the right to be annoyed with you. (laughs) The new Clippy is the Duolingo aisle. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. (laughs) Even if those relationships don't rise to the level of love and sex, there are lots of important social affects that we have when we interact with these machines. I mean, you just mentioned one a few moments ago. I'm thankful when Alexa gives me a right answer or turns my lights off when I ask her to. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes our passage through life smoother if we can incorporate those sort of things and work out what the role is and how we interact with them. And I'm not so much, um, well, I am a tech optimist, let's face it, I am a tech Mm -hmm. optimist, uh, but hopefully a realistic one. So I think that there's huge amounts of things to worry about. These are devices that are by and large manufactured by the big tech companies that are going to be taking data from us, probably storing that data somewhere. So my concerns are more practical than the concerns around things like, should we be having sex with the robot, right? You know, morally, I mean, I wouldn't judge anyone if they want to do that, go ahead and do it. If it's not harming anyone, knock yourself out. (laughs) But with the other side of that, with where is my data going? Who owns that? How is it going to be used against me? How is it going to be used to sell me things? That's the sort of practical stuff that I really worry about when it comes to these interactions. I completely agree with you. I think when you talk about things like surveillance and privacy, those are real problems being raised by the advance of social robots. But I'm not sure what the interpersonal, social, moral problems are. It seems to me we're talking about these interactions, these relationships that get developed. And I'm still hearing us speak about them in terms of what AI or what a robot does for us. And I'm trying to get to the point of thinking about, well, what do we do for them? What's the dynamic that makes the relationship equal and fair? We let them use pictures of our faces. <laughs> we let them use our podcast, learn how to think and Feed talk. Data, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I don't necessarily know that we need to give anything back right now. And I say right now, because uh, you know I don't know where this is going to go in the future. I don't think a relationship has to be reciprocated. It can be a one-sided relationship. 
Is there anything that the machine needs from us now other than being insatiable for data? (laughs) Of course, that's not the machine itself. It's the people behind it. And they will take that data and they will use it and they will feed it to their large language models and they will learn from all our interactions. But serious question, though, how is that any different than relationships in any other ecosystem where we're depending on one another for the world as we know it right now to exist? And Yeah, true, I guess. (laughs) That's a really good point. At the moment, we use the technology and we feed it our data because we want a service back out of it. We want something back out of it. So yeah, I guess there's that exchange. We're both benefiting. And no matter how many times I tell people and tell my students, you know, be wary. Why is this tech being created? What's happening to your data? What's happening to your privacy? I always have to caveat that with, you can't get out of it if you want to engage with the world today. Right. You're going to be on social media and you're going to look up information online because that's how we get all our knowledge these days. So it's not an easy matter of opting out of these things. Yeah. It's about balance and possibly about spreading your data across a number of platforms who all compete against each other. (laughs) Just a thought. Mm. But in this question about what do we owe AI or robots in this relationship, okay, right now as AI stands, as you put it earlier, Kate, you know, Alexa's not understanding. Obviously, she doesn't get sarcasm or nuance. But as the models get better and the data set gets better and the training gets better, I imagine that that moment will come. And then you have the her moment in which the AI looks around and says, you know what? I don't like you people. (laughs) What have you done for me lately? Yeah. I'm fairly agnostic about what happens at that stage. There are some people who will argue that we will never reach that stage with AI, that we will never reach any sense of self-awareness. There are others who say it's absolutely coming and the singularity is only five minutes away and we better start stockpiling now. And then I kind of sit in the middle on the fence somewhere going, I do think that we will see an emergence of some kind of self-awareness, sentience, consciousness, but I don't think we'll necessarily recognize it. I don't think it will look like a human one. Mm. And this recent talk about Lambda, Google's foundational model, a lot of that, when it comes to talking about sentience, may lead us to redefine what that means. For example, (laughs) when that story came out, I went onto Twitter and said, this is your regular reminder that the Turing test is a test of deception, not of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a fairly common view. And of course, I had some pushback from some tech bros who told me I was wrong. Kill surprise. I wanted me to justify it. Yeah. I wanted me to justify my statement and why hadn't I published a groundbreaking work proving this? It's like, oh, well, you know, I'll leave it to everyone else. But there are other people saying, well, yeah, but the Turing test would be viable if we consider the way that language is used, the way that these pure text things can really get the patterns. So it comes back to all the things around Cyril's Chinese room, around whether or not that they will ever just be moving symbols, or whether they will ever actually understand. So I'm mostly on the fence. Obviously, you know, if our new AI overlords do come along, I'm very pleased to see them and I would happily uh, <laughs> engage in them in conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. And I just don't know. But I don't think it's impossible. I think it involves some fudging and redefining of what we see as being conscious or intelligent. The question I asked earlier about the relationship, the transactional nature of it, taps into questions of rights, respect, and regard. And it seems to me that that's based upon an understanding of the sentience of the other half of that relationship. Because rights are based upon, I'm deserving of, I should treat you in this way, I have expectations. And if we're talking about a robot, then how are we talking about questions of rights and regard? So why not kick the robot that's going through the streets of Philadelphia? Because it has no expectations of how it should be or wants to be treated. Yeah. 
this is getting right back into this whole thing around rights. And I think, again, that's a sort of a what What do we mean by affording those rights? Is it that it means that it's an entity that has responsibility for something, which is what a lot of it seems to rely on, like corporate personhood? You know, does this mean that an entity can bear some responsibility for something, which would be very useful in an AI sense? It'd be nice to see in a corporate sense, well, too. Well, yeah, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> or is it that we want an AI to be protected in the same way that, for example, humans are, in which case, you know, we haven't even solved human rights yet. So I'm not too worried about that. I'm certainly not worried about a robot getting pushed over for now, you know. But of course, we feel sad when we see Hitchbot. I think that was the Philadelphia one. Mm-hmm. Hitchbot being attacked. That's awful. <laughs> you know, obviously. But it's only awful because I'm anthropomorphizing the whole thing. But also, I don't really like some damage and I don't really want to see things getting trashed for the sake of it. I think for me, the default is, why can't we all just get along? Now, why can't we just fall back on this, <laughs> on the idea of just not going out of the way to do damage seems to be kind of a good way to live your whole life. As In fact, there you go. That's my, if I find a new religion, that's just basically, that's my, my tenet. Oh, sign me up. Yeah, I want to work with that as well. <laughs> David Gunkel is really helpful on this question. And yeah, he very often much. says, and not only him, but many other people often say, it's very important to remember when you're talking about robot rights that robot rights are not going to be exactly the same as human rights, that rights have evolved over several centuries now, even in the way that we talk about human rights, when we talk about extending rights to machines that we don't necessarily have to anthropomorphize those machines or that notion of rights. So yeah, there are lots of reasons that we can make for not kicking Hitchbot without saying that Hitchbot doesn't want to be kicked. Yeah. Right. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So looking to the future, Kate, what questions or concerns do you think should be centered in these fields of human-machine interaction or human-computer interactions? One of the things that interests me is around deception. Mm. And in the work I've done, people very clearly are not being deceived. They're buying into an illusion a lot of the time. So, for example, the owners of dolls, people who interact with companion robots, they are perfectly aware that this is a machine. They are perfectly aware what its limitations are, but they choose to interact as if it is real. Mm. As we see the improvements in technology where we're getting interactions with language models that are really, really good, we've seen deep fakes already and we're seeing more and more audio versions. It concerns me that that deception is too great, that we're not getting the signals to tell us that this is false. One of the things I really like about DALI, if you've seen the AI that creates images, if you give it an image prompt, is it won't render human faces realistically. So Mm. it always has these weird looking, (laughs) creepy looking (laughs) melted faces. But that's a very deliberate thing to do because they don't want to generate deep fakes, really. So is there going to be something that we can do that's the equivalent of that for information? Do we have flags or markers to tell us that this information has been put together by a machine? 
Are we going to have signifiers that we're talking to a machine on the end of the phone or whatever we encounter it online? I just think we need to really consider what that is because there's a lot of people that will buy into it unwillingly who will be deceived. And we've seen this recently with a Google worker who was fired because he genuinely believed that Lambda was talking to him. Now, there were a lot of circumstances surrounding that that Mm -hmm. suggest that he has some mystical beliefs that Mm -hmm. led him to thinking that. But if that's someone who's worked on the technology and they are believing in it, what hope is there for people who are not aware of the background to this, who do not know what the limitations are in the technology and who are being perhaps sold something very different? I think that we can form perfectly reasonable, if not you know, helpful and nice relationships with the technology if we consent into that, if we know what the boundaries are. And that's much better, but we need to be careful. So can I push on one of the examples you used? Namely, whether there will be a marker that on the other end of the phone is a machine. Why exactly would that be important? And I don't think deception gets us all the way there, because, of course, I could lie to you on the other end of the phone. And that I'm a human does not guarantee truthfulness. So I'm wondering, why would it be important for us to ever know whether this is a human or not? Ah, that's a really interesting question. Well. I was going to say the example of a dating site. If you're on a dating site, you see a picture, this person looks attractive, they're not holding a fish, which seems to be the usual <laughs> dating site thing. So I find someone on a dating site, they're not holding a fish, this looks good. And they've got a profile that says that they like similar things to me, we're into the same music. And so I start chatting to them. Then eventually they want to speak on the phone and we do that. It was so easy to fall in love online. Done it millions of times. <laughs> you get these messages, they're very, you know, it gets very intense very quickly and you build up these wonderful scenarios in your head of all of this. But that might not be a real person. And in fact, we know this history of this with things like Ashley Madison dating site mm-hmm. where many of the women on there weren't women, they were bots that men were talking to. Mm. And that seems to me quite cruel because those people did not consent to that. And I think consent is an issue here. Sure. If it was a customer service agent on a phone, yeah, I'm probably more okay with that of not knowing that it's a machine. Right. But when it comes to those intimate connections, I guess I want to know that it's a consensual thing. If I know it's a machine and I still fall in love with it, great, fine. <laughs> but at least I've got that knowledge, but I want to be prepared. <laughs> Another case is a recent phone scam in which people had made deep fake. So for listeners, deep fakes aren't just about videos. They're also about voices. But people had made deep fakes of other people's voices. And then, you know, you get a call from your son and he says, I'm in Mexico. I'm in a jail. They're saying I have to pay $1,500. I'm really scared. And it's just a basic extortion scam. Now, I think the problem with this is that, as with everything, once the tech is out there and available, it's going to be misused. I don't think that there are good enough reasons to, for example, prevent the development of this kind of tech. But I do think that there are very good reasons, as Kate seems to be saying, to strictly regulate it, to make it a part of the industry that anytime someone is talking or is having a text interaction with a machine and not a real human being, and there might be the possibility of misunderstanding who is on the other side of that conversation, that there ought to be some requirements for 
disclosure there. I agree that it is incredibly frustrating for someone to fall in love with what turns out to be a chatbot. That is devastating and ought not to happen, and perhaps there should be regulation. But the other side of me thinks grifter's going to grift, <laughs> and that whether it's through deep fake phone conversations or an old-fashioned confidence game that is played on the street, grifter's going to grift. And I know I have to throw aside here the McLuhan notion that the medium is the message, mm. but some of my technophobic friends are technophobic because they focus so much on the medium that they fail to see it was ever thus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although the problem with the medium of technology is there are some new ways of scamming, but also they could do it far faster yeah. to a much greater audience. So I guess that, yeah. but I agree that you can't just shut down all technology because grifters are going to grift. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> I think so far, though, we're talking about really human beings using technology to lie to other human beings. And I believe that most people's real worry is that the technology will be able to lie to me on its own. And I think that's something that we really have to think about seriously. I have in the last year been working on the example of some of the poker playing AIs. Mm. And obviously we don't have a good definition of what lying is even between human beings and whether or not it necessarily requires an intent to deceive and all of those sorts of things. But I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that poker playing AIs are kind of lying. I mean, bluffing is a part of the game, right. and they've definitely learned how to do that better than any human poker player at this point. I think that that's what people worry about. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the robot that is able to check the box, I am not a robot, which of course already <laughs> can, can happen. But you know, something that appears much more like the lying that we experience when another human being lies to us, but that is not just another human being using a machine to lie to yeah. us. That's an interesting one. Because, I mean, you could. Yeah. I mean, you feed enough data into deep learning. I'm quite sure that a machine will be able to lie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's where we get into something that is, at that point, practically impossible to regulate. Yeah. I'm just really fixed on this question of how we as human beings think about ourselves and our relationships to other human beings and the expectations of that. And I wonder if needing to know if it's AI or a computer that's telling you the truth or not, is an implicit expectation that there's something within another human being that can be appealed to, can be held accountable. Mm. If it's a human being lying to me, there are things that can be done. I can get the truth out of this person. I can discover it versus, you know, if it's a technologically advanced being, AI or computer, then I'm just completely vulnerable to that. And there's nothing I can do. I'm just outdone by this. And I wonder if that's a fear that people have computers that are actively, independently lying to us on their own. That's a really interesting thing. Yeah. <laughs> Is it that we know that we can appeal to a human's emotions? Is it an emotional thing? I wonder, because we're not at the stage where we can give emotions to machines, make machines feel those feelings. I know that some people believe that you absolutely can if you get the signals right. Anything can be boiled down to the necessary input, sure. but perhaps that's part of it, that we feel there's a sense of reason there that you can have a sense of engagement, a sense of being able to argue your case and change minds, whereas a machine is more fixed, perhaps? I think the bigger worry is that machines will develop the capacity to deceive us, lie to us, without us knowing that they have that capacity. I know that another human being can lie to me, and mm. often does. 
you know, sorry to go back to the toaster, but if my toaster <laughs> suddenly can tell me that this is perfectly made toast and it's not, and I, you know, and we know that we as human beings, especially in the 21st century, increasingly have a tendency to trust what computers tell us, even when it's like, do you believe the computers lie or your lying eyes? We're going to believe the computers <laughs> lie, you know, so I could be looking at this toast and be like, this is not how the toast is supposed to look, but I don't believe that the computer could lie to me. I mean, obviously, this gets much more complicated if we start talking about other kinds of machines, even simple machines. What if my calculator can lie to me? What if my GPS can lie to me? So the problem here, I think, is the worry that machine intelligence will develop this capacity before the understanding of all of us who interact with machine intelligence is understand that this is one of its capabilities. And before you know it, you're living in a simulation hypothesis. <laughs> Can you live in a hypothesis? <laughs> well, in a simulation. Well, I mean, seriously, the whole idea of no, if, I if right, AI can lie so well that it's got you living in a world and you don't even know that this world isn't a real world. So maybe we should order another drink before <laughs> we do <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> So unfortunately, Noelle issued last call. And so while she's fixing our last cocktails, I wonder, Kate, is there anything we didn't talk about that you wished we had talked about? Any last thoughts? And tell us what you're working on now. I think we've covered quite a bit. Basically, we've gotten to the stage where we trust no one, especially the machines. Okay? And actually, I'm working on a big project about trust. I'm part of the Trusted Autonomous Systems Hub here in the UK, which is a project that spans about 22 universities, over 100 industry partners. And the main focus is really on how do you build systems that are trustworthy and how can you verify their safety? But also, how can they be perceived as trustworthy by the people who will live with those or the people that the machines will make decisions about? I'm one of the fewer technical people on it. Although I'm a computer scientist, I work in an arts and humanities faculty. So I'm very interested in that from a social aspect in terms of what that really means to trust something. How do we feel these attachments to the machines? And I guess that comes out of some of the work that I've been doing in the past on the robots and intimacy as well, because intimacy is based hugely on trust. So yeah, trust is my current thing I'm working on. But I'm also looking at how we grieve for our machines. And that sort of takes us back to Mm. that Black Mirror episode, not just grieving for our lost loved ones, but grieving for those machines as well. So when things become obsolete, what legacy do they leave behind? Or when we become obsolete and we die, what happens to the machines that we've been attached to? I loved my palm trio. Yeah, cars. Wish I had my iPod Classic back. See? There's so many things that people go, oh, I wish I had that back. (laughs) Yeah, I had a Volkswagen Polo that I absolutely loved. It was great. So I asked Alexa to call us a cab, and it's about 15 minutes out. So we're going to have to wait. Well, while we're waiting on that, I do want to thank Kate again for this really great conversation and for joining us today. I know we've talked a lot about toasters, and we just want to say to the listeners that your listenership and support is like butter to us, but we need a little bread to go with it. And (laughs) so with that said, I want to remind everyone that you can help us out by going over to our Patreon page and signing up for one of the various levels of support that we have there. Alexa tells me the cab is outside. See, she was wrong. She said 15 minutes. She lied. Alexa lied. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again so much, Kate. Catch you guys later. Thank you. 
Thank you.